Hello, Secret Movie Clubbers, and welcome to Secret Movie Club Summer Podcast number seven. Today, uh, we are going to do, as we've been doing for the last few weeks, uh, a hybrid combo. Uh, The new material is going to be about my personal favorite movies of the 21st century, the ones that I uh, feel are the masterworks, the masterpieces. And then we're also going to repost Secret Movie Club Podcast 96, where which was reconsidering Speed Racer and the Wachowskis. If you're a movie lover and you devote your life to movies, there are these certain movies that over time you notice everyone talking about and being like, that was a really good movie. And it gets rediscovered. I really love this podcast, uh, probably because I really love Speed Racer. This week, by the time you hear this, uh, it'll be... Thursday, September 7th, because I've noticed that I've been posting these on Thursdays, so I might as well include Thursdays. Um, tonight is a big one. Uh, as part of our secret movie, our secret series 2023, this is night eight. We only have three nights to go, night eight, night nine, night 10. And tonight we are doing part eight. If you're in the know, you know what I'm talking about. And we have actor George Griffith, who played in this masterwork. Uh, hired killer Ray Monroe coming to actually uh, do a Q&A and talk about. He is in Part 8, the beginning of Part 8. Uh, so tonight is great. So if you want to come, we only have a few tickets left. Uh, the last I looked, I think we had 15 tickets left. Tomorrow, um, Friday, uh, September 8th, on 35 millimeter, we're doing a double bill of two of the greatest action movies, I think, of the 21st century. I won't be talking about them today, but uh, just come see them tomorrow. Uh, the Raid Redemption and The Raid 2. On Saturday, I love when Guillermo del Toro takes on fascism. We're doing uh, The Devil's Backbone on 35 millimeter. And his newest, uh, Pinocchio, his stop motion movie, which many think is his greatest movie in the last 10, 15 years. Next Wednesday is our secret uh, filmmaking workshop. That's where we have actors and filmmakers. We have a set number of scenes that are five pages or fewer. Uh, The writer-directors bring them in. We pair the actors with the filmmakers. The first half of the workshop, they prep them. And then the second half of the workshop, we put the scenes up and give feedback to the actors and the filmmakers. Uh, We are full up on the writer-director scenes. That that filled up actually a week or two ago. We still have a few slots for actors and would love actors. So write us at community at secretmovieclub.com if you are an actor and you want to come down to our space and uh, do some work. And then next Thursday, Thursday, September 14th at 7.30, both on 35mm. We're doing a Pedro Almodovar double bill. Two of uh, my favorite Almodovar movies. I, I think these are two of his greatest. Bad Education and Live Flesh. You can write us a community, email us basically at community at secretmovieclub.com. You can see our calendar and actually a lot of our, our blogs, our TV shows, our uh, original productions, Uh, at secretmovieclub.com. Just go on over there, our calendar. Uh, Also, the cheat code, which I've told everybody, is if you just want to know if you're in the Southern California area and you just want a nice little notification every time we launch a new movie event, uh, go to Eventbrite and just follow us on Eventbrite, Eventbrite Secret Movie Club. Also, uh, we are always very grateful if you give us reviews. Reviews help us. So if you like what we do, we'd love a, a podcast review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever their podcast reviews. And if you come to our events, we'd love a Google review, a Yelp review. And if you've you know listened to our podcast, come to our events, gone to our website, been a part of our community, and you think, hey, you guys need to do better. I have ideas on how this thing 
could be better, be what it should be. We want that too. Uh, and you know, by all means, post that online. Or you can write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. We read every single email. Okay, moving on. So today, I wanted to talk about uh, my personal subjective list of what I think are the greatest movies of uh, the 21st century so far, so the last 23 years. I think that there's, as with everything, there's a bend-dot diagram, uh, to use a chemistry metaphor, there's a bend-dot diagram overlapping with what you would say are the objective great movies of the 21st century and your subjective list. And uh, some of the movies that I think are objectively great and are on my subjective list, but I'm not going to talk about today, only because I think they just get talked about all the time. Wong Kar Wai's In the Mood for Love, David Lynch's Mulholland Drive, Spirited Away, Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings, and George Miller's Mad Max Fury Road. I love those films, and but we've covered a lot of them in other podcasts, and I, I feel like they've been talked about a lot. On that note, uh, let's get into it. And but but I am, <laughs> yeah. Let's just get into it. So when you look at the la- the movies of the last twenty three years, uh, let's start with Steven Spielberg's Catch Me If You Can. The reason that I nominate this one above others of Spielberg's that I love. And this one I really thought about. I actually, when I looked at my list, I was surprised that it was a Spielberg movie and not a Scorsese movie that made this list. Uh, I I love, uh, I think, uh, uh, Wolf of Wall Street, Silence, The Irishman, and even The Departed, even though I think, you know, The Departed's got some problems, but uh, I think those are all great movies. And I think Scorsese is uh, one of the greatest filmmakers who has ever lived. So I was surprised to myself, and and this is why it's subjective, that I put Catch Me If You Can on the list. And uh, I think the reason is probably has something to do with personal affinity. Um, Catch Me If You Can is uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, Tom Hanks. It's the real life story of con man Frank Abagnale, who as a teenager forged millions of dollars in checks and successfully impersonated doctors, lawyers, and airplane pilots. And he even passed the bar in Louisiana uh, to practice law. But he did this all as a teenager until he was eventually caught. And then he turned and ended up putting his con man skills to work uh, for the FBI, sort of preventing fraud. this movie, what I realize about Catch Me If You Can, the older I get, is that I weirdly think, paradoxically, it's the closest Spielberg has gotten to really honest, unsentimental autobiography. I am a big fan of 2022's The Fablemans. We talked about it, which is real autobiography. But I think that Spielberg, and I get this too, um, when you make a movie about people you live with and you know, I think Spielberg may have rounded the edges a little bit on some of the things or you know even though even though I think he, he really tried not to but when you you work with fiction paradoxically you don't have to round the edges because it's clearly fiction no one's going to accuse you of uh you know going at or being overly critical of people that you know and so when you look at catch me if you can it is this it's the fablemans uh it is it's about a teenage boy whose parents eventually get a divorce. The mom is having an affair with the dad's best friend. The dad doesn't really know how to deal with it and is still in love with the mom. The son and the dad have a problematic relationship but essentially love each other. And then the son recedes into a world of fantasy and fiction as a way to cope with his broken home life. It's the Fablemans. But what's interesting is that I think 
who knows where Spielberg was at that time or whatever was going on. I think weirdly sometimes when Spielberg is making a duel or a Jaws, uh, you know, and those are early in his career, of course, but or a Catch Me If You Can mid later in his career. And he's not, you know, he doesn't have the burden or the mantle of I'm Steven Spielberg. I'm I'm automatically in the best picture race. I'm automatically considered the great you know, the most talented American filmmaker of the last 30 or 40 years. I think ironically, when you see this movie, Catch Me If You Can, uh, it's it's just great filmmaking. It's actually like dual filmmaking uh, with an autobiographical story and it, with no sense of self-importance or just the, the weight of uh, how do I tell this story and meet my responsibility as a creative scion of the United States, which I sometimes feel now. Uh, and I, I don't know that you can avoid that. You feel that with a lot of filmmakers who pass through the, uh, the ring of fire of just uh, international incandescent fame. Uh, but anyway... I love the performances. I love the movie. I don't think, you know, it, it avoids that Spielberg thing of the, not, it lands the ending. Uh, and it, it's, it's just, it, I think it is Spielberg's greatest uh, movie of the 21st century. I think it's one of the great 21st century movies. Uh, I love AI and Minority Report and uh, Lincoln and Munich. But I think that those movies all, you could say, oh, you know, here's, and I even really love War of the Worlds, but uh, <clears throat> this didn't work, that didn't work, bup, 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 bup. Catch Me If You Can, I, I, I just think it's great. I nominate it for a great movie. Uh, Alfonso Cuaron's Children of Men it, from 2006. Uh, a lot has been written about this movie. A lot of people come into this movie hearing about the amazing uh, single shots, the oneers that run for five to eight minutes that Cuaron and his cinematographer Emmanuel Lubieski pull off, including just this amazing car oneer. Uh, where they're actually, uh, they, it was a mixture of a real car and CGI, uh, but it is a true oneer, um, and uh, just all this stuff happening in the background of the frame as uh, these characters are trying to escape. Basically, uh, Children of Men is based on a novel by P.D. James. It's a sci-fi book or uh, story about a near dystopian future in Britain where no child has been born for the last 10 or 18 years. And uh, the bereaved uh, father of uh, who lost a son, uh, played by Clive Owen, um, s sort of through happenstance, his wife who disappeared, reappears, played by Julianne Moore, and asks him to shepherd a woman who it turns out is pregnant uh, to this boat called the Tomorrow uh, because it's the first pregnancy in 10 or 15 years. But there are all of these political forces that want to use this pregnancy or end this pregnancy, and they just want to get her to the boat uh, with the child. It, it, if you didn't intuit it already, it's a clear uh, biblical retelling of the nativity. And if you're, you're, you know, if that moves you, which it does for me, um, the story, and, and by the time they're using real spiritual music in the last third of the movie and they're trying to get out to the boat from this uh, detention camp, I mean, I'm always in tears. But I think Quaron's brilliance, part of his brilliance, is uh, uh, that w whatever his own spiritual beliefs are or what he, w the reasons he's telling the story, he really makes sure it is, uh, he world builds and the secular sense of the story is just incredible. Um, these, uh, you know, and, and he also doesn't pull any punches, which I love. Uh, there are a lot of people and everyone's behaving in a very human way. So even the rebel group that you initially think 
oh, no, I'm with these people. These people are fighting the totalitarian government. Uh, but then you realize they have their selfish motivations as well. It also does that great thing where it has a main character who is spiritually dead, who comes to life. Uh, and uh, I also love how it tells a very symbolic story, but it absolutely, absolutely obscures that symbolism uh, in, in humanism and the secular, which so you don't feel like you're being lectured to. Uh, in 2007, three great movies were made. Uh, the Coen Brothers' No Country for Old Men, Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Blood, and David Fincher's Zodiac. E even No Country for Old Men and There Will Be Blood actually could see each other. They were both shooting around Marfa, Texas. Uh, and there's funny stories where the filmmakers from one crew like would see the, I guess it would be the Coen saw the uh, oil derrick explosion sequence and the special effects for that for There Will Be Blood while they were shooting and they had to like turn and shoot in a different direction. No Country for Old Men is interesting in that the Coens have a bit of a cycle where um, if they make a few movies that don't really work, they tend to recenter back to the very first genre that they ever did in Blood Simple, which is interesting kind of a regional noir so blood simple was their very first movie they make a bunch of movies they uh, had a bit of a misfire with hudsucker proxy so they recenter with fargo which is this regional noir that takes place up in minnesota in north dakota south dakota then they they make a number of movies and uh then they have some misfires even though i think intolerable cruelty made a lot of money you might call it a critical misfire even though now it's been reappreciated but intolerable cruelty but certainly lady killers so they then recentered with an adaptation of cormac mccarthy's very tough tough novel no country for old men and uh here's a regional noir again in in the southwest it's like a border noir because it's it's cormac mccarthy and what I find interesting specifically about this adaptation is that it is quite possible that the Coens, because they've done this, they did it with True Grit as well. Um, every now and then the Coens will do an adaptation of someone else's book uh, and they, they sort of make it for a price. Uh, the movie makes a lot of money and then they're able to go off and make their Inside Lewin Davis or A Serious Man, which were movies I wanted to talk about, but I, I, I ultimately feel like No Country may be the greatest, even though I think A Serious Man gives it a run for its money for sure. Um, but w what I love about No Country, and I'm sure it's in the McCarthy source material as well. In fact, I know it is. But, you know, I, I never know if Joel or Ethan, and I don't want to uh, impute what I don't know, so I'm not going to do that. But there's this incredible philosophical underpinning to a lot of their movies. But like I was saying with Children of Men, they always just go, hey, you want a violent noir? Here you go, baby. But if you want, and I do love subtext, and I do love philosophy, uh, you want that, it's there. Here's this, this subtext for you, if you want it. And I do think that's the only way you can really do it in cinema, uh, rather than foregrounding and lecturing people, specifically saying like, hey, I figured it out. What's fascinating upon rewatch and rewatch is that the three main characters, uh, Javier Bardem's Anton Chigurh, who is a hired killer who eventually becomes this kind of unstoppable supernatural force of nature, uh, Tommy Lee Jones, a police officer detective who's essentially decent but can't believe what he's seeing. And Josh Brolin's very human. Uh, he, he basically takes money from this botched uh, drug deal and he's just smart enough to stay ahead of the people chasing him to get the money until he isn't. And so he sort of represents all of us who seem to stay ahead of fate and destiny and chance and disaster uh, until we don't. 
Uh, what you realize upon watching the movies is that they, the three represent in some ways the cosmic forces, and none of the cosmic forces, well, one of them, but, but the, the, the one of them is undone. The other two are not, and uh, it, it, when you watch it, the movie's very thorny. You don't quite know what it's saying, and I, I love that. Um, there Will Be Blood, it's fascinating. I, I do think the more I watch The Master that... Uh, the Master is also one of Paul Thomas Anderson's greatest movies, uh, and in some ways even more mysterious and inscrutable, which for cinema makes it, I think, weirdly more enduring. But There Will Be Blood, you know, I think you just have to say, this is the one that really is one of the great movies of the 21st century. Daniel Day-Lewis plays oil man Daniel Plainview, who basically strikes a devil's bargain with a local preacher played by Paul Dano, Eli Sunday, to get a bunch of people to okay uh, the oil man to drill for oil. Uh, and But he does it by sort of pretending clearly to be a part of their church. Uh, and then both men hate each other, but are in this uh, sort of just snake-eating-itself relationship to get what they want cynically. Uh, and what's fascinating about the movie is that, uh, you know, in the greatest of movies, even when you have an anti-hero like, like Daniel Day-Lewis's Daniel Plainview, he starts out incredibly admirably. The movie starts with this 20-minute, I think, near-wordless sequence where you see him uh, initially, um, you know, mining for oil or mining for something. Uh, and then he he later partners and, and moves to oil. But you see uh, his grit, his determination. Uh, you see what's going to make him, uh, you know, basically become a Gilded Age oil baron. Uh, but you see the good characteristics of that. And then the movie is like a tragedy, a Greek tragedy in that everything that could redeem him, uh, he slowly gives into the worst aspects of his nature. Uh, the thing about There Will Be Blood, along with that, is I think it's clear prescience in, ta in identifying something that in the hands of other filmmakers gets done way too simplistically, which is uh, American politicians' uh, exploitation of religion and then American religion's exploitation of politics for mutual political agenda that uh, in the end corrupts the soul of America. I will say about Zodiac that... Um, I think it's it's Fincher's greatest movie. I also think it's like his shaggiest dog of a movie. Almost every other Fincher movie you can see as a, a even movies like Social Network, frankly, um, you're like, oh, it's got that Fincher tightness, that Fincher uh, just zeroing in on the dynamic aspects of the cinematic story. And it's bringing the violence. It's bringing the action. It's bringing the visual eye candy. It's bringing the cinema. And Zodiac does that. But weirdly, Zodiac is a procedural. Uh, uh, I heard that Fincher, Fincher said that All the President's Men is one of his favorite movies. Great movie. I love that movie. Alan J. Pakula movie about uh, the the Washington Post journalists. Uh, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, who broke uh, the Watergate story. Um, and here you get this three-hour movie about the police detectives, the journalists, the amateur sleuths, Robert Graysmith, who was a cartoonist, uh, the opportunists like lawyer uh, Melvin Belli, uh, in the, the San Francisco area, who all try to solve the real-life Zodiac killings, which never really got solved. Uh, and what's fascinating about the movie is that as Fincher as it is, uh, it isn't 
uh, it allows itself to breathe and it really becomes about time and it becomes about not being able to get what you want and yet at the same time making a kind of progress. The movie does ultimately, I feel, tip its hand to who it thinks uh, the Zodiac Killer was. And uh, until I, I get other evidence, I tend to agree with the movie's assessment of who the Zodiac Killer was. Uh, so there is something satisfying in it. Uh, and yet... Uh, the case was never officially solved. It's still open. And I do think that it's it's Fincher's most profound movie uh, because it really is about life itself um, and our feelings of resolving or not resolving. Uh, and, uh, and it's one of my favorite movies of the 21st century. 2009's Um Prophet is another one of my, like even among this list I'm giving you, Zodiac and Um Prophet are like among my favorite, favorite, personal favorite. This movie is a French movie uh, made by Jacques Audiard about a young French Algerian uh, petty thief who gets imprisoned and to live basically has a crackerjack story. The Corsican mafia in the prison says, you've got to kill this other Muslim who's in your wing or we're going to kill you. And uh, he has to make a decision. This isn't really a spoiler because this all happens in the first 30 minutes of the picture, but he he eventually does kill this fellow Muslim. Uh, And then the ghost of this Muslim um, appears to him. And as he's rising in the Corsican mafia and becomes the right-hand man of its lieutenant and, and or the kingpin, and the kingpin delivers this amazing performance, as does the, the actor playing the Algerian thief, the young Algerian thief, you see this dual rise. The movie is about the dual rise of somebody in the secular world, uh, in the mafia world, at the same time having a spiritual awakening as a Muslim. And to me, it's it's a movie that does the impossible, which is address the secular and the spiritual, which have been the two eternal forces in human nature from the very beginning when we were painting on caves. Uh, and uh, so that is one of my favorite films. Lars von Trier's Melancholia. I love a lot of Lars von Trier's uh, work. There's only one or two of the von Trier movies that I would say probably ultimately don't work. Melancholia, which is about Kirsten Dunst, who has chronic depression, and basically this planet's going to collide with our planet, and so it's the end of the world. And weirdly, because she's suffered from near-suicidal chronic depression, she's better able to accept this than everybody else. Uh, It's a very ambitious movie. I would call it like the atheist's movie about wonder, the atheist's movie about the cosmic mystery, because it ultimately is very brutal and very hard to take. But it is still about forces greater than us, bigger than us, and dealing with things that we would view as sort of beyond our understanding. And and Lars von Trier is, has this ridiculously ambitious final shot in the movie that uh, it, it sticks the landing. It is an incredible film. Uh, and and I think that cinema, whatever your, your, your beliefs are, you've got to go watch the movies that challenge you because it's like reading. It's like living. If you're open to being challenged, then your world gets bigger. Uh, your beliefs uh, either evolve as they need to when you get new facts that make you think or they're tested and strengthened and melancholy is incredible. There's an incredible 2012 documentary, The Act of Killing, which is about the real life story of the mass killings in Indonesia of communists or suspected communists by regular people who are conscripted by the government, just working class people conscripted by the government to just go kill people suspected of being communists. And the movie takes this real surreal approach because the people were then celebrating the killers were celebrated as national heroes and it does this thing that I think is is um, again when it gets at a truth you're like uh, it's like what the Irishman did 
you realize that the killers, they're not sociopaths. Uh, they are not crazy. They are regular people who, just as if you got conscripted to go fight a war, they got conscripted by the government to kill these suspected communists, and they were being told that these people were going to destroy the country. And you see them 20, 30 years later. They're in parades. They're celebrated. They're grandparents. And uh, Joshua Oppenheimer does these, gets them to do these really surreal recreations of the murders as if they're classic Hollywood movie scenes, which I guess was the only way to get them to do it and, and maybe obscure the real intention of why they're doing it. But you do also see, especially the central character, you do see these people are not free from guilt. You do see these people are suffering from a kind of PTSD about what they did. What's horrifying about the movie, though, is that they're normal. They're normal people who uh, you see that human beings, normal human beings, not, not the crazy, you know, wackos, all of us could potentially be capable of killing innocent people if we're not careful. There's an amazing Russian film I've talked about, Hard to Be a God. Uh, it's, it's an incredible sci-fi film. If you love Solaris and uh, Stalker, you have to see it. It's basically about sci or scientists who go to a planet that has a society that never evolved beyond the Middle Ages. And so you see how the Earth could have been if it didn't get into like the Age of Enlightenment and the Age of Science. And uh, the scientists have promised not to interfere. And so consequently... Uh, you just feel this tension of the audience, the scientists wanting to steer the society, but they can't. It is an amazing movie. It's also about three hours long, and it's done in a very trying style, a very claustrophobic but beautiful wide-angle style. Uh, but if you can make it, it's unlike anything you've ever seen. Richard Linklater's Boyhood, where Linklater actually told the story of a boy from six years to 18 years old by shooting the movie across 12 years. Uh, the boy, uh, Mason is played by Eller Tovar. I hope I'm saying his name right. And uh, the parents are played by Patricia Arquette and Ethan Hawke. And you watch them all age from basically the year 1999 or 2000 to the year 2012. What a gamble when you think about it. But he pulled it off with Boyhood, so we, we have it. And and what's fascinating is that um, in that Linklater laid-back style, he's really trying again to get at truth as link later understands it so like a lot of us 12 years pass and it's not like we invented a cure for cancer or we went and fought in world war ii or um we were stuck in a mine for 110 days like obviously or we you know someone tried to kill us or obviously these things happen to a lot a lot of people but for a lot of us our stories of, of 12 years or more like and i had a crush on this girl and i applied to this college and i got this job and i made this really horrible business mistake and I had to transfer to this career and I lost this parent and uh, this parent married this kind of step parent I didn't get along with and my sibling and I and that's the kind of movie it is and it's beautiful and transcendent and sublime uh, and incredible and it's 12 years. Uh, Twin Peaks The Return we'll talk about next week. Into the Spider-Verse, an animated movie about Miles Morales who lives in an alternate universe where Spider-Man dies. And he eventually teams up with all these alternate universe Spider-Mans uh, to take on Kingpin in his universe. Uh, and he becomes uh, Spider-Man in his uh, universe. Uh, and Miles Morales' parents are uh, black and Puerto Rican. So Miles Morales is mixed race. 
Uh, and then uh, he loves uh, a female Spider-Man, uh, voiced by Haley Stanfield. And then there's like a divorced, schlubby Spider-Man. Uh, and then all these other Spider-Men. There's a Spider-Noir voiced by Nick Cage, and John Mulaney voices Spider-Ham. But what, what I loved about the movie... Oh, and his uncle Aaron is turns out to be a bad guy, and they go and do street art together. And uh, but what I loved about the movie was that I think a lot of what Hollywood tries to do, and especially has tried to do in the last ten years, which I applaud it for the effort, which is to be diverse, to more accurately represent what America is and and can and should be, which is people from all over the world, of all races, all religions, all backgrounds. Um, equally participating and buying into a society and trying to make it great. And the only way that uh, that can work is if your entertainment reflects that society and that aspiration to that society. But a lot of times, <clears throat> excuse me, I feel that in, in a lot of the work that tries to do that, uh, you feel people patting themselves on the back. Hollywood also has suffered from smugness and... Um, sort of self-congratulation, uh, which is obnoxious and which is why it turns people off. Uh, the very things I think that are applaudable, uh, that are laudable about Hollywood, which is that it often uh, is ahead of culture in terms of empathy. Um, it also has one of the worst things, which I, I really criticize it for, which is uh, this entitled sense of being great and not acknowledging that a lot of us in Hollywood or in the movie industry are just not as smart. You know, we <laughs> we didn't get a doctorate in rocket science. We are not doctors. We are not lawyers. That's not to say that doctors and lawyers are all smart or smarter than people in Hollywood. But uh, there should be a humility, and there is in a lot of filmmakers uh, in Hollywood, but there's also not. <laughs> and maybe that's true of every industry. But the thing about Into the Spider-Verse that I love is that uh, it it is representative. It's diverse. Um, it presents a vision of America where anyone and everyone absolutely can be president in a way. Everybody can be Spider-Man as it should be. Uh, and, uh, but it doesn't, uh, it doesn't pat itself on the back. It's just a great movie. It is just a great movie. And by being a great movie with those elements, I think it is infinitely more successful than the other movies that uh, foreground it and are applauding themselves for their agenda. Finally, last two movies, uh, Lover's Rock, Steve McQueen's Lover's Rock. Uh, this was a movie that, it, like Twin Peaks, The Return, um, I think in Britain they did come out as movies through the BBC. Uh, I, I don't know. and Please don't quote me on that. I should have researched that before I said it. But here they came out on Amazon as five different feature films. I love that Steve McQueen did this. Steve McQueen uh, had won for 12 Years a Slave. Uh, he'd also done uh, The Hunger Artist and Shame. Um, and here he makes five movies about the black experience in Britain across, I think, from the 50s to the current times. That that uh, timeline may be a little smaller than I just said, maybe 60s to the aughts. I, I have to look at each film. But each film deals with a different aspect of uh, the black experience. Lover's Rock, uh, it, interestingly, kind of like Catch Me If You Can, we're sort of coming full circle, is uh, the lightest of them. It's about a house party in 1980 uh, in London's vibrant West Caribbean community, and it's it's a story we all know. Like a lot of us lived it. Although I'm embarrassed to say I did not, because I was such a nerdy guy in high school. Uh, but it's a girl sneaks out of her house, her fairly conservative religious house. Although it's not overly, it's just probably like a lot of houses that are Christian and trying to raise good kids. And here's her curfew, and we're going to church tomorrow. She sneaks out of her house on Saturday in her dress 
goes to this house party, falls in love. Uh, you see all these different characters at the house party. A lot of the movie is just dedicated to this DJ playing amazing dub music from like reggae music and ska music. Uh, just dance sequences, people talking, flirting, uh, peacocking fighting but ultimately there's an amazing sequence where they put on this uh, Rastafari song that really gets all the West Caribbean men they 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 suddenly there's this show of uh independence and agency and masculinity which also turns bad uh it, it, as represented by certain characters um and then the girl sneaks back into her house uh in her dress uh, and then just gets up and goes to church i think lovers rock even though it does i think it is and i think Steve McQueen is to some extent uh, and rightfully so, a political filmmaker. In fact, it's, it's sort of inarguable that he's a political filmmaker. Um, I think the way he approaches it in Lover's Rock is uh, transcendent. And finally, uh, just from two years ago or a year and a half ago, Joaquin Trier's The Worst Person in the World, this Norwegian movie about a Norwegian woman, Julie, uh, in her uh, early 20s, I think when we meet her, early to mid-20s. And the story is we, we just, we follow her across really two serious boyfriends and several career changes until she ends up a smack in adulthood in her 30s. Uh, and that's the story. And it, like boyhood in a way, uh, it's told and it's all the things that happen to us. Although there is one pretty serious thing that does happen to one of the characters, not Julie, uh, but one of the characters she dates, uh, that is very, very heavy. But I do think what happens there does eventually happen to all of us with somebody we love, uh, and that's somebody who gets sick and is going to die and then does die. Um, the movie, the, the thing, I guess the thing I want to say is the reason I put it on this list, I do think the movie has a few issues. Uh, Joaquin Trier, I believe, is like a white dude, and I think he's middle-aged. And sometimes the movie... <laughs> It feels like a white middle-aged dude trying to understand his millennial or uh, Generation Z girlfriend. Uh, and those parts, uh, which I think, and maybe they couldn't help but sort of tip their hand to maybe being overly sympathetic to that point of view. Um, those, those, those parts, uh, the movie stumbles a bit, in my opinion, but the performance by the main actor who plays Julie and really the filmmaker's commitment to Julie uh, and the movie really is told from Julie's point of view and giving Julie her full agency. Uh, she's very human. She's not neither a devil nor a saint, uh, but she's very relatable, very empathetic. And she makes great choices and bad choices like we all do. And where she ends up in her 30s, I think we all end up as a product of our choices. Uh that is backed up with this incredible commitment to cinematic style. So rather than just sort of the floating, roving camera, um, the which I think you get sometimes with Slice of Life, this, this movie has this incredible sequence where uh, she, you know, in her mind, freezes time, runs to another uh, guy that she loves. Uh, and it's a very beautiful, surreal, old school movie sequence so and there's another uh, sequence where she takes mushrooms and she trips and it's an and then they they do prosthetics and she imagines herself in kind of a weird old baby body and uh that's another instance of um a movie sequence so it's a movie with movie sequences even though it's telling a very uh slice of life story and by doing that I think paradoxically, again, it gets closer to how we experience that. Uh, and I do think ultimately it does land the plane uh, because where Julie ends up and her sort of thinking about where she is, what she's succeeded at, what she hasn't succeeded at, is it gets at a truth of life that uh, other movies that try to do the same thing don't get at. Um, and I think by leaning into cinema, 
to make a cinema cinema movie, it does that. Uh, and so I will end there. Thank you guys so much. I would love to hear what you think are the greatest movies of the 21st century. Uh, just wrapping this up, the reason I wanted to go through this, that's my personal list. But all those movies inspire me to make movies, inspire me to believe that there are movies yet to be made, inspire me to believe that movies are still a vital part of the international pop culture dialogue. And as long as people can have faith and belief in the power of cinema and take the chance, and it's always jumping off a cliff, it's always jumping off a cliff, to, and then the worst thing is you jump off a cliff and then as you're flying through the air to what could be your death a thousand feet below, two thousand feet below, it's like there are horrible birds <laughs> attacking you from all sides at the same time that you're trying to figure out a way to land uh, and distracting you from making the thing that you want to make and you have to convince the birds. And I'm not saying, and they're also birds that are trying to help you. So it's like you're simultaneously fighting off the bad birds and convincing the birds that can help you fly uh, to like gain flight, cross the chasm. This metaphor is not coming together. But nevertheless, we people have to have a, a unbelievable amount of faith <laughs> anytime they make a movie that it's of worth and I'd love you to make your own list I'd love to hear what your list is write us a community uh, at secretmovieclub.com if you hear this podcast and say hey here's my list and uh, maybe we'll post it maybe we'll uh, add it but at, at the very least I hope when you make the list or maybe you go revisit these movies or you see your own movies or you have your own movies you're like Craig your list totally dumb totally disagree why didn't you name this 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 and this uh, let's do that and then let's go out and with faith, make those movies. All right, guys, thank you so much. Here is Secret Movie Club Podcast 96, reconsidering Speed Racer and the Wachowskis. Next week, we'll be back the next part of our Twin Peaks appreciation. We will talk about Twin Peaks The Return, parts one through eight. Part eight being, I think, possibly one of the, not possibly, it is, one of the greatest, in my opinion, one of the greatest hours of television ever made. And Twin Peaks The Return, one of the greatest movies of the 21st century. So we'll be back next week. Uh, as always, you can find our calendar at Eventbrite. Just Google Eventbrite, secretmovieclub.com. Uh, you can write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. Here we go to the next podcast. I love you, family. Where is nice. it? Oh, here it is. Look at this little hot dog, man. You should hold up a sign that says I was stupid and here I was pointing at you, Edwin. Oh, hot dog, okay. Man. Your dad gave this to me, this photo of yeah. you. Oh, Big you. old weenie. That's beautiful. Hey, listen, bitch. Was that taken yesterday? It was taken oh. of him watching Speed Racer. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. It's your best photo, dude. Hello, Secret Movie Clubbers. Welcome to Secret Movie Club Podcast 96. As I was just telling the team, we are recording during the Ides of March. I'm just going to be humble and yet try to exert discretion and free will to navigate this. Today, we are talking about Speed Racer and the Wachowskis. We actually just showed Speed Racer as part of our reconsideration cinema. It's a movie that I love, but as you're going to hear from the team, not everybody loves it. And certainly when it came out, it was not a hit. And we have, for the first time, a special guest. She has been OG from the beginning. Would everybody <laughs> give it up for Anne Mortensen Agnew? Thank you guys very much for having me on. I'm very excited and flattered to be here. Anne is a TV and movie writer and loves anime. Uh, yeah. She's also an avid film aficionado, and we've been hanging with her, and she's been a friend. for. When was the first time you came to Super Movie Club? 
It was Enter the Dragon in September 2018. Oh, sweet. So there, yes. I mean, look, four years. God, oh my gosh, it is going to be four years. Um, I'm an animation writer, animation and comics with the tabletop and Vigi games from here and there. But yeah, I've been an anime fan my whole life. And actually, in retrospect, one of the first anime I ever saw was Speed Racer on Cartoon Network when I was a little kid. And Anne, so, you're awesome. Yeah. Oh, thank you very much. You guys Just, are awesome too. And it's good to have a female <laughs> voice on the show. So thank you for being here. Thank you. And uh, who else is with us? Hello, it's Daniel. Hey, it's me, Carnal Lloyd Cruz, the people's champion. Hello, America. This another day in the teenage wasteland of life. Edwin, you're in your 20s. Just go off, man. Edwin has his trademark Coca-Cola in his hands. And when I invited him to my daughter's third birthday, his only question was, was there going to be Coke? And I told him that was a totally inappropriate question for a children's birthday. So there's no Coke involved. I still don't think you understand my joke. Yeah, I, I get the joke. I get the joke. So do I have to go to the store and buy, buy it? Oh, I'll do it. No, you Thank don't you. understand the joke. That's, you still think I'm talking about Coca-Cola, but that's okay. It's wonderful to have everybody here. By the time that you hear this, we are going to be doing a rock opera musical double, both on 35, The Who's Tommy and Pink Floyd's The Wall at the Secret Movie Club Theater. Saturday, we are going to be showing a double of Prince. Purple Rain is one of my favorite pop songs of all time. I used to torture everyone on my birthday by singing it. I love singing, but I can't really sing. And I certainly can't really sing Purple Rain. But I love that song. We're going to do Purple Rain on 35mm and then Prince's concert film, like criminally underseen and often considered one of the greatest concert films of all time, Sign of the Times. And then next Tuesday, March 22nd, is our Take a Chance Cinema on David Lowry's A Ghost Story. I hope you guys will come see this movie. It was just made a few years ago. A friend recommended it to me, and I always love when someone recommends something. In fact, Anne has recommended an Estonian science fiction film that I'm determined to see and maybe show. But uh, I saw this a ghost story. I hadn't heard too much about it. It blew my mind, especially the more I thought about it. It's incredible. It says that it stars Casey Affleck and Bruno Mara, but it really stars someone with a sheet over them who is dead for 100 years in a cyclical loop in a house. You really have to see it. It's a conceit that you don't think should work, and yet it works hauntingly. No pun intended. It's amazing. Then on Wednesday, I've been promising it. You're going to do it or not. We are doing a live improv with the resistance of the 1977 softcore musical Cinderella on 35 millimeter. The resistance is gonna do a quick live improv ahead of time and then they're gonna live dub Cinderella. I keep saying this and people laugh. I kind of mean it as a joke, kind of not. We did this because it supposedly has great music. It has a reputation in the softcore world as being the Rocky horror of softcore musicals. I don't know how many softcore musicals exist. We're doing that. And then on Thursday, it's our first night of open mic short night in March. The theme is musicals. But I think that for the first one, we're going to be doing a bunch of shorts that aren't on that theme because everyone who's doing the musical challenge is probably going to show in the second night. But if you've got a short, please submit at the end of every month. We're now showing shorts and filmmakers are getting to know filmmakers. I am going to be doing another short, not starring Edwin, who's like a superstar. The one that starred Edwin killed. And this one is more of a Stan Brackage musical montage of Los Angeles. So we'll see if it works. As always, write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. If you have complaints, though, write Edwin. Uh, and then you can find out about everything that we do at secretmovieclub.com or go to Eventbrite at secretmovieclub.com. Here we go. So interestingly, the Wachowskis had made the Matrix trilogy. 
coming off the Matrix trilogy, they really could do anything. Does anyone know, was V for Vendetta, which they produced and wrote, was that before Speed Racer? Uh, I believe it was. I think V for Vendetta was right after the Matrix. Was a... It was like 2004, 2005. But they didn't really direct it. They wrote it and they kind of did a George Lucas thing where they got someone else to direct it. They were probably yeah. burned out on doing the Matrix, which is understandable. But then they came back to directing with Speed Racer, which was a live adaptation of the 1960s anime Speed Racer cartoon, which, as Anne said, plays on Cartoon Network. And many people discovered I remember it played like Saturday mornings when I was a kid. It had to have been one of the first animes I saw, too. Yeah, it was one of the first ones that I, I ever saw. I didn't even know what anime was. Yeah. I, just like, I just thought it was a cartoon. Yeah, I don't think I ever registered it as an anime. It was just a cartoon that was on a bunch. And Speed Racer was definitely meant for kids. It dealt with our lead Speed Racer and his family and a bunch of races that he had. And a monkey, Chim Chim, and a bunch of great stuff and a lot of fun and a lot of evil dastardly villains. And the Wachowskis actually had this epiphany, having worked more and more with digital and with computers, that you no longer had to just accept the grammar of cinema, which they would say was, okay, you have a shot, you cut, you have a shot, you cut. With computers, you could have different transitions and it could actually all be one shot if you wanted to. The transitions could be transitions on close-ups that acted as wipes. And so they use Speed Racer to try to, in a way, do a new kind of filmic grammar. It starred Emile Hirsch, John Goodman, Susan Sarandon, Christina Ricci. Roger Allen, I think, is Royalton. Matthew Fox. It was a live action adaptation, but it tried to retain the heart of the anime. Basically, the storyline is that Speed, his brother, dies or mysteriously disappears. Uh, no one really knows. Speed follows in his brother's footsteps and becomes a racer. And he's so good that uh, Royalton, who heads up this conglomerate, wants him to race, but Speed struggles with, does he want to be with the corporation or not? And when he decides not, Royalton turns on him and turns on the family, and the family has to figure out a way to still do what they love in a world where corporations seem to crush everything. I loved it. I, I loved it so much. When it came out in 2008, I want to say it was, I was in high school and I was too cool for this Speed Racer movie. Like the Matrix sequels weren't good. And like, I was a woman of taste at age 16 and like, this is for <laughs> kids. So like, whatever, I'm not going to go see Speed Could Racer. Could that be the title of the first part of your memoir is a woman of taste? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Exemplary taste. Later, I'm I'm in college and I, I moved to L.A. from Philadelphia to write for animation. So I was studying that and I made friends with a bunch of animators who all were just gonzo for Speed Racer. I was like, oh, I heard that movie was bad. And they were like, no, that you're incorrect. That movie's amazing. And I was like, OK. And then later, as I learned that actually I enjoy everything, I especially enjoy weird things. And one of the things I loved about the Wachowskis, which, you know, we see in this movie is they are always doing something new and different and strange, which was makes them one of my favorite directors. I actively put off watching Speed Racer because I did not want the first time I saw what had been described to me as a candy-colored adrenaline dreamscape to be on a laptop. So this was my first time seeing it, and it completely lived up to the hype. It was genuinely incredible. By the way, kudos to yes. you and your friend for coming in Matrix jackets. Yes, my friend <laughs> May Cat, who is a fellow animation writer and also Matrix super enthusiast. May, in fact, the Matrix is one of her origin stories for being a professional creative. She owns Hugo Weaving's copy of the shooting script that went up on eBay a few months ago. She bought Whoa. it. I've read it. 
it's very cool, like seeing Hugo Weaving's like notes for, you know, how he's going to play Agent Smith. It's truly incredible. <laughs> you're a huge anime fan, but you had not seen this Speed Racer. So yeah. your reaction, you just saw it about five days ago in a sold out audience, which was, I think, the way to see it. And probably as an experience you couldn't have gotten until now, because I think when it came out, it almost certainly didn't have any sold out audiences. No, I think when it came out, people were like, the f- like the f- is this? They're too busy seeing Iron Man and the Dark Knight. They're like, this isn't the Matrix. I was promised more Matrix. Which they were not actually promised. The Wachowskis apparently were like very much, this is a movie for children. This is a movie for children. Stop expecting the Matrix. I'm glad that I waited because I. it kind of reminds me of um, that bit in Back to the Future where Marty like plays Van Halen and everybody's like, what is this? And he's like, your kids are going to like this. Don't worry. I feel like 2008 people were not ready for Speed Racer, but Speed Racer had to happen for like so much of like just the playing with genre. Like, I mean, that's just the Wachowski is like in 10 years, everyone's going to look back on what they've done and be like, oh, this was great, actually. Edwin, I, you know, I know for some reason the relationship we all have in Secret Movie Club is like a bit prickly. It could take us at the same time that it's loving. But I also appreciate because not this movie was not a hit and a lot of people don't think it's great. And you were telling us ahead of the show that you're not a fan of it. So tell us your thoughts. It's it's not a good picture. It's not a good picture. I can't dig it. There's too much CGI going all over the place. In the beginning of the picture, there's like too many flashback scenes happening all at once. Like, okay, chill. Brother's dead. Typical origin story. Blah, 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 blah. It just kind of killed like the true essence of like practical car chase and race stuff like that. You know, that's why for me personally, I want to see the real stunts, you know, real drivers driving actual physical cars, not whatever this is right now. Uh, I just could not get into it. Just like so many things happening all at once. I just like, you know, now I love the movie and I'll get to my thing, but I want to back you up here, Edwin. I think Edwin, I think you're the odd man out here, to be honest. But that's good. It makes it a conversation. It's America. We do Uh, need a dissenting voice in the room to tell him that he's wrong. Yeah. (laughs) But Edwin, you bring up a really good point here, which is that the car chases are almost all animated. Yeah, I don't like that. It's it's unbearable. Like Totally fair. And so even though it's live action, a lot of the movie is still, for all intents and purposes, cartoon, despite the fact that you have real people sort of composited into the cars. So I, I think that's important for people to know going into the picture. Also, no. Uh, why does Matthew Fox try to sound like George Clooney? He sounds so much like George Clooney. Hey, I saw Batman Robin. Let me make my voice like that. Like they were going out at the time. Yeah, that's true. You pick up you pick up the mannerisms of your lover. Yeah, Matthew was under his tutelage trying to be like a TV actor, break out into movies, and he just didn't do as well. Sorry, Matt. Yeah, it sucks. I love this movie. I think it's great. I think it's one of my favorite movies. I think Edwin's points, while I think they stand and I think they work as personal preference, I think it's a little bit like my friends who like complain about Marvel movies and are like, there's too many characters in in that big team up movie. And it's like, well, that's kind of the point. It's like to, to go to this movie and to complain about the animation and, and CG and effects and stuff. I don't know. Again, it's it's like getting an apple and eating an apple then being mad that you are eating an apple because it tastes like an apple. Because I think the style in this is at least 60% of what works, 65%. I think it's so unique and so interesting. And I love this kind of experimentation. It's interesting that it did come out in 2008 because I think there is this kind of dichotomy that people will bring up with Iron Man and Dark Knight coming out that same year. But functionally, as lighter as the MCU stuff is to all the DC stuff, it's still realistic. You know, like as trippy or weird as 
it gets, it still functions in a real world. What I love about something like Speed Racer, I love this about Scott Pilgrim. It's the thing I appreciate about like Jean-Luc Godard, for instance, which we covered a couple weeks ago, is that sort of complete dedication to this style. And I think the visuals hold up remarkably well in the same way that Scott Pilgrim does because CGI that's realistic from like 20 years ago looks kind of iffy now. This CGI is not even trying to look real. It never looks real. It's right, it's stylized. Which actually, in retrospect, was a brilliant decision. Yeah, because it holds up. I think it looks probably the same way it looks to us now as it looks then, as opposed to, again, some sort of heavy CGI movie that's from that era. I do also love, I I think thematically, the movie also goes into something that the Wachowskis seem to be obsessed with. In some ways, some of the thematic stuff feels like a dry run for uh, Matrix Resurrections in terms of like the corporations and selling out and the point of making art for the purpose of making art. It's like such an on the nose line, but I love the little exchange he has with John Goodman, where John Goodman's like, what do you you think? You think you can drive a car and change the world? And Speed's just like, maybe not, but it's the only thing I know how to do and I gotta do something. It's so earnest and goofy, but I love that kind of stuff. I love earnest, big emotions. And yeah, this movie's a blast. And if you can see it with an audience, definitely see it. Yeah, Connor was there that night too. And you staked out the good spot. Uh, me and former guest and Secret Movie Club buddy, Jamie was there and we sat next to each other on the couch and enjoyed Speed Racer together. Oh, uh, no, there's a side note when that was happening. I wanted to be there, but I was at the Beverly because I didn't want to miss a Kung Fu movie. Thank you. Sorry about that. Thank you for that content. That's getting cut. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think Anne, Connor, and I are are on a similar ground here. Let me set up the world in 2008. I am weeks away from graduating high school. I've just seen Iron Man, which I sort of was like, summer's done. Like, how do you top? This is a thing that's happened. Like, movies are dope. I'm 18. Life is good. And then a week later... Speed Racer drops. None of my friends want to see Speed Racer. I go to see Speed Racer at the Cinemark IMAX on 71st Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma, with a crowd of maybe 10 to 15 people, and am genuinely shook to the core. And you guys have been around me to a degree. Sometimes I really like hyper fixate on a movie, and I won't shut up about this movie. It's been about Paddington. It's been a lot, a lot of things I think are genuinely great. But Speed Racer was that thing for me in 2008. But my friends are very strong-willed, and none of them cared enough to actually make the effort. It also didn't help that Speed Racer lasted for a few days, I think, in like IMAX and theaters in Tulsa, and then was quickly just pushed away to bring Iron Man back, because Iron Man was colossal. And then it became a thing for me where I was also a big advent of making my friends come over to show them how good Blu-rays look. <laughs> they were like, DVD, what's the difference? And I'd be like, come to my home, we're going to watch. And when Speed Racer came out on Blu-ray, it was the go-to because it looked like a different world. That setup has zero payoff, just to say that this is one of my favorite movies. I completely understand the criticism against it. I, I don't fight people on disliking it. But I think this is such a thing that knows exactly what it is. There is zero interest in realism. There's this obsession that we still struggle with now, or not we, but filmmakers and studios of trying to adapt things and stay true to the form. And so often it fails because they try so hard to stay true to the form that they don't understand the material and what translates it from the medium they're pulling it from. But I think the Wachowskis nail things here because they take the heart of the show and they keep that within the characters and then build everything else around the visuals. And their visual take is that, like we were saying earlier, anything is possible. There's nothing off limits. And so within that, you sort of immediately, and I think the theater really enhances this, but you kind of immediately within those first few minutes are just enveloped in this odd sense of how they're going to do things. 
And I could go on about each thing where you're just like, I can't, how did you do this? Like you have someone finishing a race and the screen flashes into checkerboards that spin into a transition that then pulls us into the house that wouldn't work in any other thing. It's like this beautiful thing that they've nailed down. Yeah, I was going to read like a little quote from them that, Craig, you read like this full quote. This is Lena Wachowski. We don't experience the world in sentences and capitals and periods. We experience the world in this like running stream of consciousness and connections. We thought, wouldn't it be amazing to create sequences in a film that are just rushing montages that simulate the way we actually experience the world? Then later on, and we're like, wow, we could make the first Cubist film because we could do edits that have the back of someone's head and the front of their face on the screen at the same time. Uh, and lastly, we knew adults cannot accept challenges to their conventional aesthetic, the aesthetic they are bonded to. Adults, if you sort of assault the aesthetic, they will really rage in this primitive way. Uh, so we thought maybe we can make it for kids because kids are much more open aesthetically. When I think back about the way we remember experiences in movies that we love and sort of how things blend and how set pieces stick with you. And it's so weird to think about the things that stick with you from Speed Racer because so often you haven't created a falsity in your brain. It's exactly how it was. It just like gets to live that way, if that makes sense. Like, oh, it's this crazy scene and this and this happens. It almost sounds fake in retrospect. When I think about Speed Racer, it's completely in there is an energy to this movie that few other things have. There is a singularity to it that I think is so like, what do you compare? I think Scott Pilgrim's a good comparison, but beyond sort of this, who else has captured this vibe, I guess, successfully in this regard? And no one's tried since because it was kind of a failure to my understanding. It keeps failing. Yeah, the closest <laughs> I can think of is the Battle Angel Alita movie from a couple years ago. I mean, Spider-Verse? Spider-Verse, actually, especially in terms of aesthetic challenges and just playing with, like, what the technology is capable of doing. That's actually really, that's, that's a really good example. Comment. And an understanding of, like, adaptation of what makes a form work in another form. And another example about how large audiences don't want to see it because Spider-Verse is, like, the least successful Spider-Man movie by half, I think. Oh, I, really? I, I thought it made pretty good bank. It's the least successful Spider-Man movie. The next most made like double. Oh, that's disappointing because that movie just banged. That movie was incredible. Oh, yeah. Spider-Verse yeah. is one of my favorite movies of the last 10 years. Sony feature animation is so good. This is a sidebar. If you guys haven't seen Mitchell's and the Machines, that movie reminded me of Spider-Verse because Spider-Verse was pushing the technological limits and playing with like animating things on different like everythings. And Mitchell's and Machines had like almost like mixed media at various points. It was so just stunning visually. God, what a good flick. But yeah, that's the sort of thing that Speed Racer was doing, just like playing with what is visually and technologically possible. Yeah, that was one of my favorite parts of Mitchell's versus the Machines. I saw Mitchell's versus the Machines because of how much I love Spider-Verse. Yeah. And one of my favorite parts was how they incorporated what it's like to doodle in your notebook. All the different visual ways of being like a high school filmmaker, doodling in your notebook, and then the story itself. And so I, I want to just back you up on shouting out Sony Animation for doing great creative stuff. So I admire the Wachowskis, and I was talking to Connor about I still want to see Cloud Atlas because that's a book I read that I loved. And I'm sure they retained and found a cinematic way of doing the book within the book within the book within the book and then going back again, which was like when you read it, a lot, a lot of fun. But I haven't seen that one yet, and I may see that one and be like, no, that's my favorite Wachowskis. So I reserve that right. But having seen the first three Matrix movies and Speed Racer, Speed Racer is actually – by and far my favorite. And I think that Speed Racer is one of the great movies of the 21st century. I love that it was for kids. I guess it is a separate conversation about how something's marketed or what expectations are or from the people that brought you the Matrix are definitely, if you go in to see Speed Racer, you're gonna be like, what? 
But I mean, I actually have tons of kids movie ideas and I don't and not that people do, but I don't say, oh, well, I'm this kind of filmmaker, so I can't make kids films. Or conversely, I make kids films so I can't. I mean, I look at kids films as a genre that I love and I love to watch Pixar. I love to see, you know, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory or I love to see whatever. One of the things that cinema does at its best is it takes you to worlds you can't go to or it's somehow you get to be in a world you want to live in and be like, what is this world? And I think that Speed Racer world, I think I was talking to you, Anne, about this when we were all huddled after the movie, just like raving about how we loved it. But that dangerous cross-country race uh, before the climax, like, I'm like, I want to race in that race. Like, this thing is crazy. The idea that they race, okay, and it doesn't even make geographic sense because somehow they start in the Middle East, but they end up like on another continent and they don't even explain it. But that's, it's like dream logic. One of the things I've always loved about race movies, and this is a trope about cross-country race movies, is that you sleep. You have to like, you have to lodge and then you begin the next, it's like the Tour de France. And then you begin the next lap the next day. And I love like during the downtime, they're attacked by ninjas somewhere at like a hotel. Like ninjas. Yeah. <laughs> and Christina Ricci has that great line. I love John Goodman. We were talking about, I think that man is a national treasure. I don't think anyone's really arguing that at this point. But like no matter what movie he's in, he betters it. I think he holds down the film. You know, I think Emil Hirsch is great, doesn't get enough credit for actually like pulling off speed. And I don't, Edwin, to your point, I'm somebody who loves film. I'm somebody who do the stunt for real, do the car stunt for real. So I'm with you, Edwin, that by and large, I prefer the real thing. But I understood from the beginning of this film, no, this is a different movie. And I actually find the car races thrilling. I could just sing hazanas to this movie. I think it weirdly, I'm never lost in the geography of the film, which I think is a real testament. I mean, only Spielberg is really good at that, in my opinion, and maybe Cameron. Peter Jackson's pretty good at it too. But I thought the Wachowskis pulled off, oh, here's the geography of these races, enough that I could follow them. And then finally, I do think that the Wachowskis did a great thing. It's funny though, they thought they were the first people doing it, or maybe they didn't. Everything that they did in Speed Racer, we just did Woodstock, which is the 1970 documentary on the 1969 Concert Festival edited by Thelma Schoonmaker and and Martin Scorsese. And actually, a lot of the stuff they were doing with seeing somebody from two perspectives and all that is in Woodstock. I was watching Woodstock just a day or two after Speed Racer, and I was like, oh, no, it was done 30 years before. And then I'm sure that, you know, Abel Gantz did it in Napoleon. A silent film, he did it as well. So I think the important thing isn't that you're like, we invented this, but it's that you get an idea originally, you're not imitating other people, and you explore that idea in your own unique idiosyncratic way. And the way the Wachowskis explore the idea, the cubist stream of consciousness idea, is thrilling. And Connor pointed it out, it culminates in like 40 close-up wipes mm-hmm. that comes at the end and you're like, you almost like transcend at that moment. Yeah. You're like, this is crazy. You know, the Wachowskis, not unlike the Neo storyline and not unlike actually a storyline that I don't want to ruin and it's not analogous exactly, but in a lot of their movies, a character undergoes a transformation to become the more real them. And for folks who don't know, Lana and Lily Wachowski are trans. Initially, they were introduced to us as the Wachowski brothers. I believe, wasn't Speed Racer the final film? Yeah, after that, they were the Wachowskis because um, Lana came out first. And so there's something interesting, too. They may be the most high-profile 
trans filmmakers. I think they certainly are. Who have actively tried to bring trans issues and trans sensibilities to uh, mainstream filmmaking. I think they rule the fucking school. One of the things that I, I love about the Wachowskis is that whenever I watch a movie of theirs, they are going to swing for the fences every single time. And yeah, they word. may not always hit. I love Jupiter Ascending. That movie is just swinging every single shot. And sometimes it hits and sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> There's a really good Brazil sequence towards the middle. My favorite review of Jupiter Ascending was a glowing review of it because it understood the film. It says that Channing Tatum's wolf angel space cop man is introduced. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a dark alley. It's the dead of night. He's walking through it, but like, you can't see him, but he's like cloaked in shadow. And the way it's shot is like, he's here, guys. Kane, the wolf angel cop, Kane Wise, from our childhoods. We all know him. We all love, like, <laughs> the cultural currency of Batman. We love him. He's here. Save your applause for one of your shows. We know you're ready for this. You've been waiting for 20 years. I love Jupiter Ascending. They brought up, and I think during Jupiter Ascending, it was that aesthetics for films, especially like space films, kind of always look the same like mm. uh, you know you see one spaceship especially amongst people who like aren't dedicated to like crafting an aesthetic you kind of see them all which is i think not an unfair criticism like and one of the things i love about jupiter ascending was they were like no we're gonna commit to um 15 aesthetics and we're gonna go all the way with all of them that's the same thing with speed racer like they are 100 thousand percent committing to this is a gonzo candy colored like racing like heroin rush for two hours get on board with the matrix they were i mean one of the things i love about the matrix which i think i realized last time i saw it in theaters with connor with you was pretend it's 1999 and you have never seen the matrix before you're just told you should go see this movie the first act of that film, you don't know what the fuck is going on. It's a weird techno sci-fi thriller with like a lady in leather who appears and then sometimes doesn't and like strange phone calls and like until when Neo wakes up in the pod and you see like the row of the, the, the towers of people, that is a moment where you in the theater scream, what the fuck am I watching? What is this? And then you get a new equilibrium and then they change the equilibrium and they change the equilibrium. They I mean, that's also Speed Racer. One of the things I loved about it was like every time you reached a level where you were like on the same like equilibrium as the movie, they would zag on you and do something completely different that would just make you have to race to catch up with them, much like the movie. That's my favorite thing about them is that they, they're always, always, always trying to like push boundaries and do something strange and new and different. Obviously, we'll probably come back. Maybe we'll do a Cloud Atlas episode and we'll come back to the Wachowskis. Bound. Yeah, we Bound is amazing. Bound is so good. No one's talking about assassins. But you talk about assassins. Be the change in the world. Starring yeah. Sylvester Stallone. And Tony Medeiros. Directed by Richard Donner. And Julianne Moore. That's their first uh, writing credit together. I love it. I think it's their best stuff, man. It's a very uh, unappreciated film they did for Richard Donner, even though the studio kind of botched the strip, but it's, it's a solid action picture. You know, with Stallone and Banderas, is a nice little film. I urge people to watch it because it's a pretty good uh, action movie from the 90s. And then they did Bound and Matrix, and then the rest is history. You sold that really well. <laughs> pretty good people, you know. I heard the, the new Matrix was not that 
great. But uh, I'm a big fan of uh, Revolution. Revolution is really... I think that's my favorite Matrix movie. Uh, the third one? Really? Yeah, I like the third one a lot. Dude, that final fight sequence with Keanu and uh, Mr. Anderson, dude, that was awesome. That part's cool. If you like cartoon CGI, you should check out Speed Racer. They did that movie, too. Yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> and the three people here who have seen Matrix Resurrections all really liked it. It's really good. Loved Matrix Resurrections. They literally dropped the mic on Warner Brothers by name in it and won my heart. It's Lana Wachowski's new night. Nightmare. Yeah, watching some of it, I was like, how did you, you can just say that? There's like a part, they literally, they name drop, someone says, Warner Brothers wants a new sequel, and we know how that goes. If you don't get involved, then we're going to do it without you. And he's like, okay. I'm like, oh my God, you can say that? Jonathan yeah. Groff was like, well, you know, our parent company, Time Warner, wants a yeah. new Matrix. And like the theater I was in, like, we all were like, like, exactly, like, could you say that? What the? Even my least favorite of their movies, which, sorry, Edwin, is probably Revolutions, because I think usually about around hour eight of the Sentinels attack. Zion, I get a little sleepy. <laughs> I just like that they always seem to be trying to do something weird, something a little different, which has mostly led to their movies not doing well, to be fair. I think it worked once really well, but I like that they stick to their guns and... I think that they are, uh, they're like the first of their like generation of filmmakers, I feel like in a way, like they inaugurated this sort of like the wave after like Tarantino and like Soderbergh and people like that. And I feel like Edgar Wright belongs in the same thing, partially because of aesthetics. The sort of like digital millennial, like older millennial or like young Gen X generation. And, and specifically being, they are like auteur blockbuster directors. They know that and they're not afraid of that. I love the matrix matrix another i think one of the best movies ever and i watched bound for the first time yesterday you know talking about less so trans more so just broadly queer themes i saw someone on letterboxd say that that movie was the uh like epitome of be gay do crime and <laughs> i like like to love all their stuff one of the things i liked about bound and just like again like I, I read this about it their dedication to like always doing something new that movie was turned down by several i think financiers because they were like uh, well, you know, we could do it if you make the Gina Gershon character a, a man. And they were like, we've seen that movie. No. And so it took longer to get made, but they made a much more interesting and unique movie because of it. Yeah, if people don't know, Bound is their first movie they directed before The Matrix. That is a crime thriller mafia thing that involves this basically bisexual love triangle to a certain degree. More so like a lesbian relationship at the center. It makes it, makes it very unique. I'll, I'll continue with the glowing praise. I'm in the same boat. I think... The Wachowskis are sort of the queens of reappraisal. I feel like they're operating 15 years in the future. Yes. To a degree, because they just seem to make things that somehow down the line find the audience it was meant for. And I'm happy they continue to get the money in the capacities that they do to make these things because they're colossal. I mean, beyond Bound of the Matrix, their Matrix sequels, which I think have very contentious people opinions on, have still found a large degree of reappraisal. In the years past, I think Reloaded is one of the best action films in that regard. Uh, Revolution. Revolutions is the third movie. Um, <laughs> this is one of those that grew on me. It has some stuff that deserves it at its own conversation. But as an idea and coming from the book it's based on, which I read when it was announced they were doing it. It's another one of those in an adaptation sense is kind of wild what they accomplish in understanding book to movie and what movie does different than book. Cloud Atlas was co-directed by Tom Tickfer, who did yeah. Run, Lola, Run. Yeah, I think that's just something, the way that they operate is so interesting because I think 
it's the swing for the fence thing, but it's also just this continual understanding of their dedication to moving things forward the way they want to move it form in the way that they tell their stories and the way that they use technology to tell their stories. I think in the pantheon of people like James Cameron, who's sort of famous for that, I think they belong in that conversation beyond just the Matrix bullet time. I think they look to technology for how it can improve the ways they want to share their art. And I think we often get obsessed with the way we can do things like it used to be or these certain ways. And while a lot of times that can be the way that you do it, if it favors the way that you're telling your story, their storytelling relies in how can we do anything we want to in whatever capacity that is never questioned because it can exist in the realm we create. And I think that's super impressive. So I always enjoy and look forward to everything that they put out because they're Stuff's wild. I admire the Wachowskis more than personally gravitate towards their stuff. But Speed Racer, I love unabashedly. And Matrix, the first Matrix, even if I don't go back to it a lot, I remember seeing it in the theater in 1999. And you could feel you were like, wow, this is great. This is and no one thought it was great at the time. It's hard to explain, but they dropped it in February or March of that year. Mm -hmm. The studio just thought they thought it was going to be Johnny Mnemonic or something again. Just another like Keanu Reeves techno thriller. No one was ready for just how that movie took over pop culture. And anybody who makes something like that, that's lightning in a bottle of lightning bottles. So I remember and I, I was like, whoa, I think it takes a lot of guts to be experimental. And I think it takes a lot of guts to try to push the form. I can understand studios when a director comes, we're pushing the form and the studio's like, we know how those movies do. We don't need you to push the form. We, we need you to make 150 million for us so we can employ the 5,000 people that work at the studio. And when a filmmaker comes there, you know, they have to know that kind of pushback that they're gonna get. And yet, as you're saying, it's almost a thankless task to be an innovator because what happens is that you innovate Everybody is like, what was that? And it's only 15 years later or 20 years later when everybody has taken from you and they were like, oh, no, you, you kind of set up cinema for the next 20 years. And you're like, OK, thanks, guys. It was really brutal to go through that. And I have to tip my hat to Lana and Lily because that's not an easy thing to do, to take that chance and then take that blowback and only be appreciated 10 years later. But that's the long game. And when you can play the long game like that, you know, we will be talking about these movies. And now these movies, everybody loves just hats off. Still no Speed Racer 4K. How come Warner Brothers? Yeah, I'd like to. I think through Secret Movie Club, we need to put out. We should start the petition. I'd like to be. I think this group here should be responsible for getting the presentation we deserve. Yeah, you cut my name out of that. You know, I'm cool. Yeah, I was going to leave your name. Pop culture and final thoughts, and I would love to shout out my one of my favorite bands right now, Ghost, for putting on a hell of a show in Anaheim a couple weeks ago. Um, they were incredible. I'm having a I'm, I love heavy metal. I'm seeing Judas Priest, my other favorite band tonight, so that's fun. And I've been reading a lot of Poirot books for some delightful little mysteries while at work. Uh, I saw Phantom Two last night. Pretty badass. Prefer over the first one. Uh, took a trip to uh, Burbank to uh, Hollywood Books and Poster. Probably now the second greatest place in Burbank. It was awesome. I got a lot of stuff. I just shouted them out. I decided to save this one for Anne's here because she's a comic book person. Also, is I just caught up on DC's Human Target series, which has been really fun. Uh, written by Tom King. It's got a great throwback art style, which always gets me like to go to it. I don't really like realism or like cutesy as much, especially realism 
in art and DC Black Label puts out a lot of interesting, more adult oriented stuff. The last issue especially was really cool. It all took place while the character was handing Martian Manhunter, who's a psychic assault shaker and Martian Manhunter is trying to infiltrate his mind. And he knows some like weird psychic tricks. And so the whole issue is like this kaleidoscope of their thoughts intertwining and reading each other. Issue 6 coming out soon. You can check me out at twitch.tv slash Connor Cruz and watch me play D&D Tuesdays 7 Pacific Time at twitch.tv slash NerdHalla. I'm still on a high from the Batman. Beyond that, I caught up with Succession Season 3, which is just a masterful piece of a show. I'm not a big TV person, so when TV hooks me, I'm always very invested. And then I'm finishing up a book called Dark Matter by Blake Crouch. That's this great science fiction book that's really wild. And I'm going to dive into his next one, which I think is called Recursion Next. Just vibing. Nice. We just showed last week, I talked about it earlier, an amazing week. You know, at Speed Racer, then we did Woodstock on 35mm, the 1970 documentary, which I highly recommend everybody see who's a filmmaker. And then we did Prince Ahmed, the first extant animated movie with a live Gamelon band. And watching Woodstock, the story that we, we all were blown away by was they had 10 hours they wanted to cram in. And the studio was like, no, you can't make a 10 hour movie. So Martin Scorsese had the idea, okay, we'll make a three hour movie, but we'll do three panels the whole time. And that way we'll, it'll be a 10 hour movie in three hours. And what they came up with and created was so inspiring from all everything I've heard, that shoot was just really rough on everything. Everybody. And then Prince Ahmed, it took her three years to do this in the 1920s. And and we all watched it on film. And it's it just this amazing animated film from the 1920s. And it just hit me again and again that if, if you really want to do good work, you have to be willing to really work hard and sw- do some blood, sweat and tears. And when that happens, you feel it. You feel it. And you have a feeling of like, oh, this is what cinema was. This is what cinema can be. I'm not saying that you have to be a martyr, you have to suffer, but I think you have to be willing to work really, 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 really hard to create something good. So that's all we have time for this week, folks. Can we give it up for Anne, everybody? Thank you guys so much for having me on. Thanks for coming, I'm so happy to be here. And it was wonderful. First, not the last time. Thank you very, very much. Uh, Next week's episode is Super Movie Club Podcast 97. It's our two-year anniversary. We're going to be talking about movies that we love that everybody is not such a fan of. So movies we love that a lot of other people hate. Stay tuned for that. As always, this episode was edited by our Chief Creative Content Officer, Connor Lloyd Cruz. You can write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. Find out about everything we're doing at secretmovieclub.com. I got to wrap this up. So guys, have a great week. I will talk to you all soon. Thank you everybody for being on the show. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.